is Duran Ornstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello everyone, this is Duran Ornstein from Best Saxophone Website Ever, and here I am with John Irabagon. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yep, it's Irabagon. Irabagon, okay. So, um, yeah, John is the winner of the 2008 Thelonious Monk International Saxophone Competition. He's played with a boatload of great musicians, both as a leader and as a sideman. He's a regular member of more than 10 groups, and really his musical diversity is downright amazing and quite possibly unprecedented for a jazz musician of his caliber. Besides being a part of several traditional jazz groups, John also plays with, in the words of his website, a self-destructing bebop cyborg terrorist band, as well as a band that plays nothing but 80s cover tunes. As a student of monsters such as Dave Liebman, Wynton Marsalis, and Dick Oates, John's musical foundation is more than rock solid. Some of the luminaries he's played alongside include Billy Joel, Wynton Marsalis, Bright Eyes, Tom Harrell, Joe Lovano, Deborah Gibson, John Abercrombie, Frank West, Wycliffe Gordon, Lou Reed, Ron Sexsmith, and many, many more. John's talent has taken him to every corner of the globe, Back home in New York City, John can be found playing at top venues such as Birdland, the Jazz Standard, 55 Bar, the Jazz Gallery, and Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, to name just a few. In addition to appearing on dozens of albums, John has been signed to Concord Records and has a CD of original music and standards. So, welcome, John. Great to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for setting this up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So... I'd like to get started just by asking you to just talk a little bit about how you got started in music. Okay. Um, well, I'm from Chicago originally, and um, I was going to college uh, at DePaul University in Lincoln Park on the north side of Chicago. And um, I was always involved in music in high school, but didn't really necessarily take it that seriously. It was just something fun to do with friends. And uh, But when I got to college and started, I started playing gigs around the city, and Chicago is great because it's very diverse. There's a ton of different, great, authentic kinds of music going on, so over the four years that I was there in college, I was playing with um, some really great big bands, uh, a, a Brazilian ensemble that were all people from Brazil except for me, uh, so that was great for me to get some rhythm things together and some Brazilian melodic things together. Uh, I was playing in some really free uh, improvising groups. I was playing in a Sting and Police cover band. So I was doing a lot of different playing, and I realized while I was uh, doing all those things that I want, that, you know, I just loved playing music, and it was a lot of fun. It was a big challenge, and I was trying to do all these things authentically. So after I would play with the Sting cover band, <laughs> I would be like, hey, well, how do I get myself better at this? And I would check out Branford playing with Sting and, and try to try to get in there a little bit deeper. Uh, and at the same time, like the next day, I would be playing with a big band that was doing mainly Stan Kenton arrangements. And so I was like, well, how does Lee Konitz play lead alto, and how does he solo, and how is that different 
from the way that Johnny Hodges leads uh, the Ellington sax section. So just being a part of the Chicago musical scene with a lot of different um, kinds of music going on and actively wanting to be authentic sounding in all of them uh, kind of jump-started my uh, curiosity about delving deeper into the music here. So after doing that for a while, I, I realized I wanted to study with a with a, with a jazz teacher that, that I really admired. So I looked up Dick Oates on the Internet, and I found out he was teaching at the Manhattan School of Music. So I auditioned and got in and got to study with him for a couple of years, and that was my gateway into New York, and I've lived here ever since. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've ever come across any other sax players that have quite as diverse a taste in music as you do. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of them are pretty much locked into the jazz thing, which is totally cool. But mm -hmm. what I love about the way you play different styles and have all that versatility is you still seem to bring kind of your own trademark to, to every style you play in, which is different than what studio musicians have to do. They have to match to an exact specification, you know, an exact clone of the style they're playing in, and you kind of bring John Irabagon into everything <laughs> you do. So can you talk a little bit about how you are able to do that, how you approach those different styles and making them personal to you? Right. Well, yeah, that's something I thought about a lot. And, you know, I came into music not, you know, when I was going to college at, in DePaul, I wasn't a music, I wasn't a performance major, exactly. I was a music business major. So I was still involved in the music department there, but I was also involved in the, like, you know, accounting classes and stuff over there. Um, and after a while, when I was playing all these gigs in the city and all these different kinds of gigs, I realized that I liked all of them. I, I truly like, I truly like cheesy '80s tunes just as much as I truly love, like Four Alto by Anthony Braxton, and just as much as I love all those Cannonball records. And so, at some point, I I sat down and I thought about it, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not gonna. I can understand that generally, if people are gonna be a jazz musician. They're going to really like, they're going to find the thing that they do well and they're going to really hone that craft and they're going to become known for that one little piece of the, of, of the genre. And for me, I was just like, I realized for myself that I'm into all of it. I'm into a lot of different parts of it and I was going to try to get really, try to sound authentically me in all those different kinds and not try to deny any, any specific parts of those just because to, to try to market myself or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm a sax player myself, and I love playing mm -hmm. in jazz in a jazz setting, but about like 15 years or so ago, I realized I really love house music, too. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, at the time, I just felt like a weirdo because the jazz people what, that I went to school with, they would pretty much vomit if they heard that style of music. <laughs> and I was just kind of confused myself. And um, but now, especially talking to people like yourself and just other jazz musicians, it seems like people who are playing like lots of diverse musical styles, um, that's becoming more common. So, I mean, do you feel that's yeah. a trend as well? Yeah, I do. I actually, <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because I actually just recorded on my friend, uh, my friend Matt Grayson lives in Washington D.C. and he's a bass player and a composer, and he actually has a, a live house band. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just they just recorded a new record, and, I, and I'm on that, and I contributed a tune, a house tune to it. So you know, I've I've definitely been checking out that that style too, and I feel like you know, in 2011, 
with the whole jazz wars thing happening from the eighties and the nineties, I think that I think that that time is done, and I think that people just realize that you know music is music, and as Duke Ellington said, it's either good or bad. You know, there's two different kinds, and so uh, you know, even if something's not necessarily jazz based, I think the jazz musicians can can gather stuff, out, useful information out of that music, and vice versa. I think that um, the really strong you know, R&B songwriters or pop songwriters or something are at least jazz-informed and, and have those options available to, their, to themselves when they're writing. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think, I think that uh, music's definitely becoming more global, and I think uh, to really just pigeonhole yourself in a one specific part of one genre is, uh, is perilous to your own career, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that you do that's really interesting is your 80s cover band, Starship's Journey. Uh-huh. I was wondering, like, how did that come together? <laughs> well, uh, so I am a child of the 80s, for better or for worse. And, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't, I wasn't listening to, I know some people that when they were growing up, they just had Charlie Parker records playing, you know, when they were in the womb, and they came out and they just knew that Charlie Parker was the guy for them. And that wasn't the case for me. I, I actually didn't get into jazz until uh, maybe like halfway through high school or so. So there's a lot of music going on in those first, you know, 14 years of my life, and, and none of it was jazz. And so, um, you know, those influences are there, and, and when I sat down and, and realized that I just wanted to be as me as possible, uh, there was that realization that, well, the first 14, 15 years of my life I had no jazz, and it was these other things. So I wanted to make sure to not... I wanted to give myself full credit and, and, and possibilities and not cut that part of my life out. So, uh, you know, being here in New York, things are really hectic and busy, but I had a bunch of friends and we always wanted to play. We wanted to play some fun music that was, like, challenging in certain ways, but not, you know, like, it's, uh, we wanted to play gigs that were, like, in a judgmental, free environment or something. So... I actually just started transcribing these, these 80s pop tunes and just would write them out. But the thing about the 80s cover band is that there's still, it's not a typical 80s cover band. There's no singer. Um, mm. All the solos from the tunes that we play are written out. They're, they're the, you know, we transcribe the original, like, you know, Van Halen solo on the Michael Jackson tune. And so it's written out on there. And so when we get to that part, everyone in the band has to play the solo, so everything else stops. <laughs> um, I also write it out in concert, you know, on a, on a grand, st- grand staff with treble clef and bass clef, and uh, I squeeze as much information into those two staffs as possible. So, mm-hmm. like, background pads from the recording, like, counter melodies, the original melody, like, if there's a specific bass line, it's going to be in there. So, actually, the charts look really hilarious, because they're really just, like, chock full of information, almost too much information. And I try to make sure that when the 80s cover band plays that there's at least three or four people that are sight-reading it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of like this self-sabotage thing where it's like these like cheesy 80s tunes, but there's something messed up happening all the time because either someone's messing up or they're just not transposing right or they just can't get the, the crazy Van Halen rhythm when they're playing the solo. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 there's, actually this, there's actually an element of like, you know, subterfuge going on there. But it's in, it, you know, it's in under the guise of this like really <laughs> cheesy eighty cover band. So, but you know, things have gotten pretty busy in the last year and a half, and like we actually we actually haven't played. 
yeah. any 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 gigs. But I'm hoping at some point things might calm down a little bit and we can we can get that band up and running again. <laughs> I mean, how supportive has the jazz community and musician, you know, the musicians, you know, how supportive are they of someone like yourself playing so many different musical styles and just stepping well outside of the traditional jazz boundaries? Right. Um, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question and one I have to deal with all the time. I have a lot of friends from a lot of different, like, backgrounds and different schools and different schools of thought and stuff. And so when I, when I play in ensembles with different people, I try to just, I try to be myself within those ensembles, but also try to have done all the study enough that I can play authentically within whatever the, the leader is calling for. So, um, you know, for certain, certain band leaders, I won't break out any, uh, Evan Parker based things or Peter Brotson based things, but for other leaders, I, I won't, I'll try to not, reference any cannonball material too so i think for me it's just more fun to get to see different people's view on music and get to be a part of that and get to actively contribute to some of those things um and you know it, it keeps me it keeps me alert it keeps me challenged to try to mold myself into, into other people's visions of the music while also trying to maintain my own musical identity mm-hmm. well it's you know it's obvious that you know from hearing you play that you've got the bebop running deep in your blood. You really have a mastery on that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you, because a lot of people struggle with playing bebop, but it's, it's really kind of essential for many styles of improvisation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you did to really get that bebop uh, vocabulary solid in your playing. Right, I mean, but this is, a, this is an interesting point because some of my friends are really some, some people I know are way into bebop and that's what they do and that's where they spend all their time and and that's where they focus all their stuff and to them I'm not really a bebop person I'm this other I'm this weirdo or something but to people from Europe that I've met who who play free and stuff to them I'm like a straight just a normal old regular old straight ahead jazz musician so it, in in trying to like play and be diverse and meet all these different people and play different people's music, it's been funny seeing the uh, it's been funny seeing the, each person's perspective as to where they think I land on the jazz continuum or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but as far as your question goes directly, um, you know, I I spent uh, so I, yeah the the band the. the uh, terrorist bebop band that I play in, mostly other people do the killing, um, we kind of uh, use as many different styles from within the jazz, from under the jazz umbrella as possible. And uh, we try to do them all the time and all at once. And so when this band was, was growing, like seven years, this band's been together for like seven years. So at the beginning of the band, we're trying out a bunch of different things. And I realized that if I were going to reference certain eras or certain people or certain styles, I needed to be able to do it a little bit more definitively. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, like if I listen to myself, if I recorded myself on a gig and listen back, I, I remember certain instances of me being like, oh, I wanted to sound like, do like a cannonball Adderley type thing here, but and I thought I was doing it in my head, but when I was listening back to the recording, it just sounds kind of like it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get a little bit more exact a little bit more exacting into the um, 
into those different styles or genres or time periods. So I went through a, a big transcription phase where I tried to learn as many solos and be able to play along with them as possible with people like Benny Carter and Cannonball Adderley, Sonny Stitt, and like Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Rollins, Coltrane, Wayne Shorter, and these people. So like it, it's definitely been... Uh, and like I said, the first 14 years of my life, I didn't know what jazz was at all. So it's definitely been, in my mind, like playing catch-up with trying to learn what straight-ahead traditional jazz vocabulary is and try to incorporate that in how I hear melody lines and things like that. So it's really just been a lot of, a lot of work transcribing and listening to records and stuff. Mm-hmm. So is there any style of music that's closest to your heart, like out of bebop and pop and, and everything you do? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, I kind of I like seeing them all as uh, as equal equal things because I, I you know it, it's a it's a at certain times I'll I'll, I'll really be into certain things and at, at other times I I will not listen to those things you know mm-hmm. um, I guess I, there's nothing really that I as long as the people I'm playing with as long as they are. 100% into the music and they're putting their energy into it and there's and there's excitement and, and energy there I, I'm kind of into whatever whatever style of music it is mm-hmm. so but uh but yeah the social I mean the social element of it is really important in that I need the people to, that I'm playing with to be actively engaged in what they're doing and and really enjoy it because that's the kind of thing that's the kind of like spiritual energy that I feed off of I guess mm-hmm no, that's. I kind of had a feeling that that would be your answer, but I, I, uh, it, I'm glad I, I checked. So um, it's always interesting to hear how, just to get a little bit into the mind of, of musicians. But right. one of the things uh, that you're best known for is the fact that you won the uh, Thelonious Monk competition, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's... I believe it's just the most prestigious award in jazz, and and the past winners have been Joshua Redman, Chris Potter, Christian McBride, lots of smoking players. So, it's mm-hmm. pretty amazing that you were able to to win. Anytime someone wins that, it's an amazing thing. So, can you tell us a little about a little bit about your experience uh, with that competition? Yeah, I mean the comp this the competition is entering its twenty fifth year this year. And um, so ever since I've been in a jazz, I've known about this thing. And, I, and, you know, like you said, like Joshua Redman was the first saxophone player to have won the competition. So when I heard that, I didn't really know what the competition was, but I was like, this guy must be, must be good, so I'm going to check him out. And I was way into Joshua Redman all through high school and stuff. And, and I, people just definitely check out the people who have won that competition when, when, I, was in, when I was in high school and college. We, were, we would always check out who won it. So when it came around for saxophone in 2008, uh, I just figured I would enter. I had I had no idea how I would do. I had no idea what the judges were looking for. Even um, I just figured I would do it. And so when I got the call that I made the semifinals and to fly out to LA uh, to do that part, I was just ecstatic. I couldn't believe. I, I just didn't know where where I stood. But for me, you know, the judges for this competition for that competition were Jimmy Heath, Greg Osby. David Sanchez, Wayne Shorter, and Jane Ira Bloom. And these, these are all, you know, really important musical figures in my life and, and people that I've studied. So for me, 
the most important aspect of the competition was get was getting to meet those people and getting to hang out with them for a weekend and and picking their brain about certain things and just being around them. Mm. Um, and you know when I when I went out there, I, you know I knew some of the the other players and they are, they were all they're all great players and so you know I just figured I would just try to I'd play like me I would just do what I do and let the let whatever happens happen you know and it just I think it just it worked out that, that I won the thing, but any of the other 11 people that were there were, uh, they were all incredible. So it could have gone any way. And I think it was, kinda, I, I got pretty lucky in that, uh, that it worked out that weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I have been checking out a lot of your stuff on YouTube. There's a lot of videos of you playing and one video that stuck out a lot was, um, you know, uh, to be honest, I, I forget which tune it was, but you've got this extended a cappella solo, and it, it was pretty amazing. So it's clear that you've got, you know, you've put a lot of time into mastering the horn itself in terms of technique and flexibility. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about just some of the things you did, some of the things you practiced that were most important and most helpful, you know, for sax players coming up, um, some good things to focus on that really helped you? Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, like I, as I already said, the, trying to get to, like, authentic jazz vocabulary, uh, that, that's been a big part of where, where I've com been coming from with the music. But also, just as important, if not even more important, is trying to develop a sound that I feel, you know, one with. So, you know, doing, doing the long tones and doing the, the overtones and stuff, but also finding specific instances where, uh, the, like, a person that you're into, just, like, finding, like, a specific instance where they have the quote-unquote perfect sound for a second. You know, mm -hmm. like, I remember in, in, like, late in high school, there was a Cannonball Adderley tune called Clouds on the Cannonball's Bossa Nova record, and at one point in the, in the melody, even, this isn't even in a syllable, in the melody, at one point he hits a note, and I'm like, that's what alto saxophone is. That's what that should sound like. So take like like living with that those three seconds and trying to make, you know my, my super action eighty series two with like a Claude Lakey mouthpiece or something. Trying to get as close to the Cannonball, sound and vibe as possible, and then uh, when I feel like I could achieve some somewhat close to that on that note, try and expand that into the entire range of the horn. You know, um, just trying to think like sonically, and trying to be able to you know, like they say, make this accident an extension of my own voice. Uh, I think that that kind of study, that's not something that they necessarily can or will talk about in schools, but those are the things that kind of will help differentiate you from the other 10 million saxophone players that are out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as, uh, as far as technique, I also noticed that your, your technique was, was quite incredible. Uh, what were some of the things you did to master that? particular aspect of your playing? Ah, um, I actually had, when I was in high school, I was taking improv less, improvisation lessons, and, and but I was also taking classical saxophone lessons, mm. two classical saxophones for four years, and uh, my teacher, his name was Jim Kasperzik, and he was an amazing teacher. Uh, we went through a lot of scale studies, a lot of uh, the classical saxophone repertoire, and, you know, a lot of the etude books and stuff, and so he was 
he was on me constantly to make sure that, you know, my fingers weren't flying off the keys and that I would try to maintain a, a steady sound throughout the whole thing. So he was, he was really instrumental in, uh, in helping settle, settle down my week. <laughs> um, you know, and, and like, you know, every, people have different kinds of technique and they approach saxophone differently. For me, it was just some more of a matter of trying to, um, take the saxophone itself out of the equation so I could just think about uh, the sound and whatever melody I'm coming with at the time. So, like, you know, the hours spent with the metronome running the, the extended scales up and down and trying to keep my fingers touching the keys the entire time, I feel like those hours have paid off to a certain degree. And I thank uh, Jim Kasperlich for that. But, yeah, I took a, a bunch of classical saxophone lessons. And when I was in college, I took classical saxophone lessons with Susan Cook for a couple years as well. So I think the classical aspect of uh, the saxophone is something that can, can really help. Yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of great players talk about that. So it's, uh, I think it's really important not to overlook that, even though it can be really fun to just zone in on jazz and improvise all the time. Um, it just seems like that's a great tool to allow you to express yourself more fully. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. And, and I found that I've gotten a couple, you know, even compositional ideas and, and things like that out of some of these classical pieces that I've worked on. So. I think there's that's a whole area that's largely untouched by many of the jazz saxophone players out there. Yeah, yeah. So, so these days, uh, what do you find yourself practicing now? Uh, well, I'm basically trying to get ready for for certain things. Um, I just finished a record yesterday. Um, this recording date for this guy named Carmen Nintore. He's a drummer out of Buffalo, New York, and. Uh, he had a bunch of music that we prepared, and uh, we I played with, recorded with Joey T. Francesco, and uh, John Hart, and Pat Bianchi, and uh, it was an amazing, amazing experience. But you know, for the two two weeks before that, it was basically gearing up for that. You know, mm-hmm. like trying to learn the trying to learn the music, trying to make it so that I don't have to think too hard in the studio and just let things happen. Uh, and then now I'm going to Europe in a couple in a week or so. And I'm playing a couple gigs with Kenny Wheeler and John Taylor out in London. Mm. So we're playing, we're playing about a dozen of Kenny's tunes. So I'm trying to learn those, trying to make make it so that I'm not like just reading the charts on a gig. So uh, a lot of times these days, my uh, my practice time is taken up uh, with specific specific projects, trying to prepare for those things. Yeah, it seems like um, you know, for most professional players, there's that period in high school and college where you're just drilling on the basics really hard and then once you start getting out there and playing a lot of your practice revolves around you know like what you're talking about these musical projects and preparing yourself is 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 that your experience too or do you find yourself practicing the basics just as much i mean the, i i do always have to come back every every so often and running my scales and fourths and things like that just to make sure my fingers are working uh, run the do the overtones and long tones and things just to make sure everything's like centered, you know. But yeah, I mean, I guess I was lucky, and I didn't plan it this way. I guess, but I was lucky when I was going through high school and college playing. Like, I was trying to ru- run the basics and also transcribe and learn from the masters and stuff. But there was always just this little germ of an idea. I'm like, hey, well, I'm gonna keep doing this stuff, but there's o- there's nothing wrong with being me. So. Even when I'm trying to do something really authentically, there's always going to be a piece of me. So I was trying to develop whatever that meant at the same time when I was learning all these John Coltrane solos and stuff. So I think that 
while I'm mainly practicing for these projects and getting ready for these projects, there's always still that thing where it's it's cool to just I have certain things that I do that just were that came that just come to me naturally. So I'm gonna try to incorporate those things into all the study that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, it seems like it just it's always coming back to the music for you. You know, all these technical and uh, sound rela- tone quality related things are all sort of geared towards the greater goal, which is to just be a great musician. So yeah, so. yeah, I uh, you know, and and being part of the music scene a little bit for for a few years now, and get and seeing a lot of different aspects. You know, th- it's very easy to get pulled into uh, certain pitfalls, certain business decisions. Certain people want you to do certain things. People want to take you certain ways and stuff and so I think uh, if you can just keep focusing on the music I think you know the music will turn around and take care of you so that's kind of where I'm going these days (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so what's the next frontier for John Irabagon the musician um that's a really good question I'm actually I've got four records out as a leader as a leader at this point and the first record that I did uh, back in 2000, I think it was recorded in 2007, or something late in 2007. Uh, it was a quintet, and it took took elements of, of elements and and different genres within jazz, and we kind of mixed them all up, and uh, did a lot of group and free improvisation uh, within it. And so, I, I think what I'm going to do is uh, I'm already planning this. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of like you know get some new get some new people and kind of continue that idea. Um, and write some new music for that. So that's kind of on my musical radar. I also just did a record with Barry Altschul, who's a legendary drummer who played with Chick Corea and Anthony Braxton and Dave Holland back in the 70s in this famous group called Circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a record with him, which was a Dream Come True, because he's been one of my inspirations since I got into jazz. And uh, we are, we're doing a short tour in Europe in June, and hopefully a little bit hopefully some more stuff here in the States. So uh, trying to keep that going and trying to play with this group. Most of the other people do the killing. We're, we're playing, we're doing a European tour in July. And so there's a bunch of different fun projects going on that uh, I'm very happy to be a part of. Cool. That's cool. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing some of that stuff. So, <laughs> cool. Yeah, so what are some of the most uh, exciting things you've been hearing in music lately? Like wow. other, other artists, other you know, other bands. Just what what's getting you excited in music these days? Outside of what it, you're it, doing. It's funny. I uh, I've actually been checking out lately a lot of music that my friends that my friends are making. Because um, for me at this at this point, it's been it's really fun getting to know these people and then hearing their personalities come out in their music. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I've been. It's kind of what I've been checking out lately. Like because I know these people and I want to see how their personalities manifest themselves in their compositions and in their playing. So, uh, I've, you know, I've got a friend named Peter Evans. He plays trumpet, and I've been checking out a lot of his music lately. Uh, I've got, uh, I play on um, this record by this guitarist named Mary Halverson, and I've been checking out a bunch of her other stuff that I'm not on to just to get a grasp on what her compositional thoughts are and her improvisational process and stuff like that. So I've actually been checking out a lot of uh, Friends music these days. For better or for worse. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yeah, I could see that. I could that. I I also like uh, you know whenever I learn something about a musician's you know biography, their personal story, it always intrigues me that much more to hear their music, even if it's music that I wouldn't normally be interested in. It's just it right. is really cool to connect the two. Right, right, yeah, exactly, and that's what I've been. Uh... I've been finding more and more it's like when I get to know these people their their music makes so much makes so much sense because it's just really an extension of that person so uh, it's been fun seeing those connections yeah cool so just to close out do you have any advice for sax players looking to get better or, or even sax players looking to go pro and, and make this their full time career yeah, I mean, I think I was I was fortunate enough to take a couple lessons with with Greg Osby, who's one of my inspirations on alto saxophone, and uh, one of his, the best pieces of advice he gave me was make a checklist, you know. And so if you're really thinking about becoming a musician or, you know, playing, like sit down at some point and write it out, like write out a list, like okay, well, what kind of musician do I want to be? Uh, like you mentioned before, like a studio musician has to has a different certain set of criteria that would make him the best studio musician than a free improviser. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you are going to try to do the music thing, which is, it is possible to do, even in 2011, no matter what people say, it's possible to, to make a career out of playing music and being around music. And, uh, you know, but you, you want to be, uh, be as pinpointed as possible, and you want to find out, you want to decide exactly what you want to do, and then try to figure out what the steps are to get you to that level and get mm -hmm. you to that direction. You know, and then of course, like, you got to be listening to music all the time. You got to be studying it. You got to be trying to improve your playing, not only in your technique and sound, but also like your compositions and, and your awareness of people around you and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's really more than a full-time job, but it's really fun. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, well, thanks so much, John. Um, could probably chat about all this stuff for <laughs> another few hours, but um, <laughs> I wanted to close it with a piece of music of yours so people can get a, a sense of, of what you do. So uh, we're going to be featuring one of your tunes off the album, Foxy. And Foxy is an album, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you go through multiple versions of the song Doxy. I mean, you, you compose... Uh, you've composed melodies based on the tune Doxy, that's correct? Right, well, basically it's the chord changes to Doxy, and we, uh, we Barry Altschul and I and Peter Brundler, the bass player, we actually are just, we actually improvise throughout the entire thing. So actually the record is one long, continuous track that we've split up into 12 little pieces. Awesome, awesome. So we're going to close the podcast uh, with your tune Moxie, and right. yeah, and that's it. And there, you know, there'll be a link to John's website and uh, and uh, the video I mentioned with him doing the awesome acapella. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and put that in there too in the show notes, cool. so you can learn more about what John does and buy lots of his records and figure out what he's playing, where he's playing, and all that good stuff. So thanks so much, John. I really totally appreciate it. Yeah, Ron, my pleasure. All right, have a good one. We'll talk soon. All right. All right, you too.